Well, good morning, everyone. Would you uh, pray with me as we get started here? Lord, we're so thankful for your word that brings life. Lord, your word is challenging, convicting, strange, unfamiliar at times. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, our minds, our ears, work through our sinfulness and fallenness and brokenness, that you would reveal yourself this morning and guide us as we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, the other night we were uh, at my brother-in-law's house for dinner. It was actually, it was a really big event. We were celebrating three birthdays and a wedding anniversary, all in one go. So they, they don't have triplets, just a, they had things that kind of backed up in the big family celebrations. And we also got to celebrate my uh, brother-in-law's 23rd wedding anniversary, which was amazing. Really happy for them. My in-laws were there, though. They are celebrating their 54 years of marriage this summer, which is just incredible. It's, it's awesome. I'm so proud of them. 54 years of marriage together. And I, it's just amazing to be around them and to learn from them. And I say that I'm proud of them, not because they're sort of holy or, or perfect, not because they somehow like arrived as if you can even do that when it comes to marriage. Honestly, they would be the first to admit that they are still very much works in progress. Uh, still weak, still sinful, still prone to get in fights, still battling selfishness, still quick to get on each other's nerves. But I'm proud of them because they found a way to navigate their way through the minefield of marriage with minimal collateral damage along the way. I'm proud of them, not because they're perfect, but because they're keenly aware of how imperfect they really are and how desperately they need Christ's help on a daily basis. You see, the key to, to them making it through those 54 years has been a consistent pattern of turning away from themselves and looking to God for strength and sustenance along the way. Daily, dying to self and living for Christ and for each other. Every day for 54 years. It's remarkable. Now we've already seen in Deuteronomy uh, that healthy marriages and families are uh, at the heart of God's vision for the people of Israel. In fact, it's been God's heart for all of humanity since Adam and Eve, right from the very beginning. But the threats are so many and so significant that we need robust boundaries in place to protect ourselves from these attacks from the world, the flesh, the devil. To make it 54 years or more is, is not easy. And so this morning, we're going to look at, at three ways that we can go about guarding the temple of, our, of the Holy Spirit. In other words, our bodies. Guarding the temple of the Holy Spirit from these attacks coming at us. We're going to look at three ways we can do this. First, by pursuing personal holiness before and outside of marriage. Second, 
by maintaining marital fidelity within marriage, and finally, by working to secure dignity and honor, in particular for the, for the women in our lives. But first, let me talk to you about uh, pursuing personal holiness. You know, I've done a fair bit of uh, premarital counseling as a pastor over the years. One of the first issues that always comes up is the importance of setting boundaries with regard to issues of personal holiness. Right? It's always a bit awkward and uncomfortable. It doesn't matter. I've talked with, with 20-year-olds about this. I've talked with people in their 60s getting remarried about this. And it's always awkward and uncomfortable. There's this tension in the room, right? Passions are running high. Love is in the air. Time seems to be moving so slowly. <laughs> right? Waiting seems so hard. But despite all the awkwardness and discomfort of that conversation, it really is such an important part of the process. Why? Because what we do with our bodies really matters to God. Right? As the Apostle Paul says, if you've been born again, then your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul goes one step further. He says, your body isn't even really your own. Right? It's been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ, and therefore we're to glorify God in our bodies. Our bodies are meant to bring glory to God. And so this is why we have these awkward conversations in premarital counseling. But it goes further than that because this is also why we talk with young people about pursuing holiness long before they have even get engaged before they even have boyfriends or girlfriends, right? The goal is that we're to, uh, trying to set a trajectory uh, for life that steers people in the right direction, towards lives of, of self-control and holiness and purity, which then leads us to our passage today. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 through 30, the second half of this chapter. And as we read in uh, verse 13 here, it starts a little bit of a dark note, but Moses makes this note. If any man takes a wife and then goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct. So here, what's going on? We have a situation where a man takes a woman to be his wife, but for some reason all that desire and love quickly turns to hate. Now, hate is a really strong word. Why does he hate her? The text doesn't tell us. All we know is that he then tries to, to rid himself of this marriage as quickly as possible by then accusing his new wife of inappropriate behavior with someone else prior to or perhaps even during the engagement. That's the issue here. This was a very serious charge to make. But, the text says, if a woman's family could prove this to be a, a false, spurious charge to be making, then look at verse 18. Then the elders of that city shall make the, take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give, him, uh, give them to the father of the young woman, because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. 
So first, the, 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 the husband who's brought this false charge is to be whipped or perhaps beaten. Now, we tend to think of, of whipping or, or beating as, as being primarily a physical punishment, right? A way to balance the scales of justice by inflicting bodily pain on somebody else. And certainly that's part of it. But in an honor and shame culture, which is what this is, the point of such a public spectacle went so much deeper. The, the, the pain, that's secondary. Public acts of discipline were primarily about social humiliation, right? the removal of honor. So just as a man had attempted to bring public shame and dishonor on his wife and her family, so now the just punishment would be to bring that same shame and public dishonor to this man for his lies. So yes, there would be real physical pain from the beating, but perhaps just as significantly, there would be longer lasting social pain as well in the community. But that's not all, because in addition to this beating, he's also going to be fined 100 shekels. Now, what does that mean? Well, the normal at that time would be uh, uh, when you got married, that the husband would uh, give a sort of bride price to the father of the bride of around 50 shekels, which he's already paid. And now for uh, uh, making this accusation, he would have to then pay twice that. So this is three times that he's had the price. So if the threat of public humiliation wasn't enough to deter such self-centered lying behavior, then this enormous fine would surely seal the deal. Now you may be thinking, oh yes, but, but what if he's actually telling the truth? Right? What if this young woman has actually been uh, behaving in an inappropriate manner? Uh, well, the uh, text is uh, a little blunt and it's a little uncomfortable to talk about, but there will be a very severe punishment for her as well. But but assuming that he is, in fact, lying about this, it seems like the, uh, the, the, the situation doesn't seem very just for her, right? Where's the justice? The text says right here that, that even if he's lying, she still has to stay in the marriage and he cannot divorce her, right? She's stuck in a marriage to a man who hates her so much he was willing to risk her life to, to get rid of her. But think about this a little bit more. The man's goal all along was to divorce his wife, to be rid of her. So even if he has proved to be a liar and he gets beaten and he has to pay this fine, it doesn't make sense for them to get divorced because otherwise he's just getting what he always wanted to begin with, right? It's like heads I win, tails you lose. Moreover, and perhaps more importantly, in this culture, uh, Remaining in the marriage protected the woman from the far greater social danger of being divorced. In fact, imagine at this point, there's a very high likelihood that she could be pregnant with their child. And being cast out of the house would put both her and her child in a precarious position, both socially and financially. Clearly, 
the stakes in this situation are very high indeed. And personal holiness before marriage would there be, therefore be of utmost importance. Indeed, the underlying principle in this text, strange as it may sound to our ears today, the underlying principle is quite simple, which is less about the types of punishment involved and more about encouraging the people of God to embrace a certain way of life. As we heard John read to us a few moments ago from 1 Thessalonians, God's will for us in Christ is to abstain from all sexual immorality and to learn how to control our bodies in holiness and in honor. Why? Because God has filled us with his Holy Spirit. He has called us to lives of holiness. This isn't about legalism or moralism. This is about the people of God reflecting the character of God. Right? Not to please men or to meet some artificial set of rules or standards, but to bring glory to God with our bodies. That's what we're trying to do. I know in many respects this isn't a new message and the challenges are enormous. Right? Not only are we battling all kinds of intense desires within us, but Satan is this constant source of pressure are consistently over-promising and under-delivering. But let me propose, if I may, just a few brief solutions that may help us in this area. First, don't be shy about setting concrete, tangible boundaries for yourself. Or if you're younger, trusting in the boundaries that your parents and your families are trying to establish around you. This is not for your misery, but for your blessing to help set you on the right trajectory to channel you towards uh, glorifying God. Secondly, to pursue Christ personally and to embrace the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Limits and boundaries, they're, they're, they're good, they're, they're helpful, they're important. But ultimately, physical purity by itself, uh, that's not like the end goal, right? Growing more and more and more like Christ. That's what we're shooting for. Personal holiness flows out of that pursuit. And then thirdly, just encourage you, get help from your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's placed us in community for a reason so that we can help and bless and encourage and support each other on this difficult road. And it is difficult. And along those lines, I want to offer just one final word on this topic. Because I want you to be clear, there is abundant grace a mercy from God in our weakness and in our failure. In fact, he can clean up the very worst messes that we make. I've seen time and time again how true confession and repentance bring new life and hope, even for times and ways in which we have misused our bodies and blasted through those boundaries. One of the greatest lies from Satan is that some sins make us unredeemable, that we're somehow now too dirty to be made clean or whole again. 
But that's a lie because if you're in Christ, there is no more condemnation, no more guilt, no more shame. You can be washed white as snow and given you life. There is always hope and Jesus is there to to help us walk on new paths in the future. If you confess your sin and if you turn to him for help. So fight as hard as you can to pursue personal holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit and for the goal of God's glory. The second point I want to make from this text is to maintain marital fidelity. You know, a few years ago I learned uh, that a friend of ours was in the midst of a terrible marital crisis. As the details came out, uh, we learned that he had been living a double life, an adulterous relationship for seven years. For seven years, he had been hiding this from his wife and from his children. And although there were times along the way where he had felt guilty and ashamed about it, he felt powerless to break out. In the end, ironically, it was a photo that he himself posted on social media that led to everything unraveling. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that at some level, he knew that was going to happen, and this was his way out. There's a reason that adultery makes the top 10 list of God's commandments for us. Because this sin cuts so deeply into the fabric of our social lives. It strikes at the heart of one of the fundamental institutions created by God, threatening to destroy not just individual marriages, but entire families. Right? It's a sin that, that rapidly multiplies and extends far beyond the initial couple and can wreak havoc, not just relationally here and now, but generationally to children and grandchildren and even great-grandchildren. The lie foisted on us by Satan and encouraged by our culture is that, that sexual sins are somehow private, personal, something that, that I can contain, that the sins that are somehow just between me and God, and therefore perhaps not that big of a deal after all. But adultery, it's more like, like the tragedy a different friend of mine experienced when an electrical short in the attic of their house led to the entire building burning to the ground. In one instant, they lost everything they had. Photos, memories, books, toys, clothes, furniture, everything. All gone. Now, thankfully, they weren't home when this happened. Nobody was hurt. Obviously, insurance paid for new furniture and clothes and enabled them to find temporary housing. But imagine the emotional trauma of seeing the life that you knew and loved, literally, in this case, going up in smoke. And all that's left is this smoldering pile of rubble. That's the kind of devastating impact adultery can have on marriage and families. Except it's even worse than that because for my friend, his house caught on fire by accident, some random electrical short. 
But adultery, it's willful. It's intentional. You don't accidentally fall into adultery. It's more like purposefully lighting a match and setting your own house on fire and then watching it burn. So with all of that in mind, now look at what Moses says in verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Do you see now why the punishment listed here is so severe? Moses calls uh, adultery an evil that must be purged or completely removed. It's like a, a, a terrible stain on the, the social fabric of their nation, and the only solution is to scrub it clean. Remember, the, the people have got their poised in this precarious position right, right on the edge of the promised land. The potential for, for great blessings and privilege lie right across the River Jordan. But for this young, budding young nation to thrive, they have to preserve certain parameters on their practices. Because you can't build a great nation if the people keep burning down their own homes. Right? Adultery threatened to tear apart the fundamental building blocks of Israelite identity, marriage and family, the core institutions set in place by God at the dawn of time, institutions meant not just for our blessing, but, the but for the stability of the entire nation as a whole. So yes, the punishment is incredibly severe, harsh, extreme. But for this people at this time and in this place, it was intended to communicate the significance of the family as the central driving force behind the growth of Israel. Mess this up and everything else crumbles to the ground around you. And although this specific law, uh, like everything else, is fulfilled in Christ, the underlying principle of marital faithfulness remains in force. Like I said, not just for the sake of your own marital bliss, right? Not even just for the sake of your own children or even for your community, but because marriage is such a consistent image in the Bible of the relationship between God and his people. And severing that marital bond becomes symbolic for severing that spiritual bond as well. As we read in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The New Testament is clear that those who are unrepentant and persist in such behavior will not inherit the kingdom of God. But for those who turn back, there is nevertheless hope. My friend who led this double life for seven years, he came clean about everything and submitted himself fully and willingly and completely to whatever consequences 
will come as a result. It was a brutally honest time. First of confession, then of true repentance, as confirmed over a period of several years of counseling and therapy, first by himself and then later with his wife. She, for her part, despite having every right in the world (laughs) to, to divorce him, she chose instead to stay the course. She worked through her own deep grief and sorrow. She, she reached out to others for support and by the grace of God was somehow able to extend mercy to her fallen husband. Now, I don't want to pretend like everything was totally a happy ending. The entire experience took a heavy toll on their family and their faith. Her own parents, her parents, as you can imagine, continue to struggle with all of this. Her children have endured all kinds of horrifying emotional trauma and will bear those scars for life now. Nothing will ever be the same in that family. But the fact that they are still together, slowly working and rebuilding their house again from the ground up is a powerful testimony to the power of God to bring healing, hope, and restoration even in the very bleakest of moments. And if they can fight for their marriage, if they can find a way to claw their way back from the brink, then there is hope for each and every one of us too. And so I encourage you this morning, fight as hard as you can to maintain marital fidelity and look to God and the Holy Spirit to help you claw your way back into his presence. Well, finally, this morning, I want to talk about the importance of of, of guarding and securing and protecting the honor and dignity of of the women in our lives. Because there's a third scene presented here in the text, and I'm going to speak as, as euphemistically as possible, but as we look at verses 25 through 29, we read about the laws concerning men who want to forcibly take what isn't theirs. Now the text is clear that, that if a man seizes a woman against her will, The situation is so severe that it may end up costing him his life. In fact, Moses likens such an act to that that of a man who waits and hides to attack and murder his neighbor. It's that serious. And the malicious intent to willfully violate the law of God in this regard allows no room for leniency and punishment. In fact, in many ways, the scene that Moses paints is reminiscent of of Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? She saw the fruit, she desired the fruit, so she took the fruit. Three simple steps. And yet in that moment, she let her desires take control of her heart. Sin entered the world and forever changed the course of human history. And Moses describes a similar scene for us here. A man sees what he wants, He desires what he wants, and so he takes what he wants without any regard for the humanity of the other people involved. But the law says you cannot force someone to be your wife. 
Because women are not commodities. You can't use them and then discard them. So the stakes here are much higher and the associated punishments much more severe. Remember, again, having rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God is now in the process of of recreating them anew, shaping and forming them into a nation that will represent his character in the world. And part of that kind of imaging work involves affirming the value, dignity, and worth of all people, but especially women. And the warnings for not doing so are strong and the penalties harsh. And so, although the cultural differences between then and now are enormous, the underlying principles remain the same. So this is why we teach and train young men that young women are to be treated with dignity and honor and respect. This is why as grown-up men, we want to be models of such behavior, demonstrating to those around us that we both treasure and cherish our wives. As we read in the New Testament from 1 Peter, he encourages us, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That phrase in there, weaker vessel, is not a statement of relative value, but of relative physical stature. In other words, although there are are some women who are taller, faster, and stronger than some men, just I'm I'm humbled every time I watch the Olympics, right? I mean, (laughs) right? But generally speaking, on average, men tend to be bigger and tend to be stronger overall, which isn't meant to convey any kind of, of superior value or worth. It's just a reminder that, as Pastor Michael noted last week, God purposefully and specifically made men and women to be physically different, not just in appearance, but all the way down to the level of the DNA in ourselves. You can't change that. That's by design. It's not a flaw. It's not something to be worked around or erased or removed. It's the way God made us, and we should celebrate that gift. But it's also something not to take advantage of either. So going back to Peter's letter, men are not to abuse their relative strength to impose their will or take what isn't theirs. Rather, they are to show honor to the woman. This is why we teach, like I said, young boys not to shove or push young women, not because they're sort of delicate china dolls that are going to break, but because they're co-heirs with you of the grace of life. So even as we rightly celebrate the very real uh, differences between the sexes, we also want our young men to see the young women around them as equal in value in the eyes of God, right? As partners in the gospel, a fellow participants in all the blessings of the kingdom, co-laborers for Christ, united by the same Holy Spirit, pursuing the same common goal, headed together in the same ultimate destination to receive all the same blessings and all the same privileges. In other words, to treat women poorly is to shoot yourself in the foot, to, to hobble your ability to function in this world, to mar and destroy 
the good gift, the best gift that God has given to men to begin with. And God tells husbands in this verse that when they fail to treat women like this, their prayers, their, their, their connection to God is going to be hampered, hindered, potentially even severed. Now you might say, well, fine, this just applies to husbands and wives, I'm not married. Sure, but the point is that the time to set men and women on that trajectory is now when they're kids, when they're not married. We should be teaching and training and modeling this kind of behavior for young men and women at a very early age. And as Moses details here in Deuteronomy 22, there should continue to be very real consequences for men who abuse their positions of power or strength. As spiritual leaders, men should be looking for ways to protect the weak and the vulnerable and to fight for the cause of the innocent, to exercise restraint, to exhibit self-control, to rein in unhealthy desires and resist the temptation to take what isn't there. That's true leadership. To show women all the dignity and respect that comes from sharing in the image of God. And when these boundaries are overstepped, then the appropriate authorities should intervene to ensure justice is served and any wrongs are made right. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you to fight to secure the dignity and honor and res- uh, of the women, young women, older women, all the women in our community whom God has placed in your life. Well, wrapping this up, this is not the kind of sermon that is the one that I want to preach, right? The topics, they are hard to talk about. The content is difficult for any of us to digest. It's not something we're quick to bring up in discussion. But it's here in the text for a reason. Because we live in a sinful world and we're sinners and this kind of mess is exactly the kind of stuff that happens in our communities. Many of us have already experienced this ourselves or we know people that have and it grieves me every time I meet or counsel or encourage or hear these stories. But at the same time, I don't want to leave us this morning on a note of of cynicism and darkness and and depression and pessimism. Satan shouldn't get the last word here. There is great hope for us through the power of Jesus Christ and the transformation he works in hearts and in lives. And in the power of his Holy Spirit to enable us to be different people today. To break free from the chains of slavery and the patterns and behaviors and practices of our past or from, from our childhood or the experiences we've had. And to set us on a new trajectory instead. I know the news is filled with stories of ministry failure and marriage crisis. But I give thanks instead for the hundreds and thousands 
of couples who have found a way to persevere through the chaos and mess. Hidden, unknown, in obscurity. No one's writing news stories about them. You don't see that no one's gossiping or or twittering or talking about the people who are just faithfully doing what is right in the eyes of God day by day, year by year, month by month. Discipling their kids, managing their marriage, seeking, however imperfectly, to follow God. Couples who have managed with God's help to choose the path of humility and sacrifice. They dreamed or hoped for but who have nevertheless found a way to make it work. I give thanks for to happiness. It is holiness. It's faithfulness to the calling that God has set before us, regardless of what that is or where it is or who it is with. Faithfulness to the calling, to the ministry that God has set before us here, not the one that we wished he had given us over there. And so I pray this morning that God would help you, would help me, would help us as the people of God to live in faithfulness and obedience to him for his glory and for the sake of the generations to come. In Jesus' name. Lord, we come to you this morning and it is difficult to consider the, the darkness around us and the sin that, that creeps into our families and, and wreaks havoc and burns things down and threatens to consume us. But Lord, we turn to you in hope. Lord, we turn to you for strength. We turn to you for encouragement. We turn to you for healing. And this morning, Lord, I pray that you would set each of us on a different trajectory through the power of your spirit as we confess and repent and look to you for help that you would meet us in, those, in our time of need and set us on the path to life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.